Let's give a round of applause. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you to everyone who is returning. Oh, we miss you and we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is something very special. I know that uh, sometimes we can have a good tradition, right, or a good habit. And because it's a habit or because it's a tradition, anything that becomes repetitive, whether it's frequently or even if it's spaced out, but it's a tradition or it's repetitive, sometimes we can lose the meaning, right? Like, oh, this is what I do at this time. So that could happen to us every Sunday morning. Oh, the alarm goes off, get the kids ready, grab the bag, get the milk, you know, get the comb. And then it's almost like we're programmed and we're programmed into a good routine, but the problem is sometimes routines then just become routines. And so for us, we don't want this to be just another Sunday. But we also don't want it to be, oh, this is that time of the year where we just go to church and then we talk about when that guy resurrected. We actually are partaking in a tradition that has begun for 2,000 years. I want us to understand why we do what we do. And so the tradition itself isn't wrong, it's good. But don't get lost in the rhythm that you miss the meaning or we miss the meaning of why we're here. Do you know the reason why you and I go to church every Sunday? It's because of what we just read in the passage in Luke 24. Jesus died on a Friday. He then went into the tomb and it was silent on Saturday. But then on Sunday, which is the first day of the week for the Jewish tradition, when the women went to mourn and to acknowledge and to cry and to anoint the body of dead Jesus, when they got there at dawn, the Bible tells us, he wasn't in the tomb. And the messengers from heaven had to tell them, He's not here, but here's the thing. He told you he wouldn't be here. He told you that he had to be delivered into the hands of men and be crucified, but he would rise on the third day. And look at this. That third day for them is the Sunday for us. And since that Sunday, people who had heard and people who had followed Jesus and people who had seen the risen Jesus Every Sunday at dawn, they started to come together to talk about the risen Savior. And that tradition has gone on. And you and I are now part of a tradition. We are part of a rhythm. We are taking part. You know, right now there are thousands, hundreds upon thousands of Christians who are right now and they're looking. Their hearts are postured risen Jesus and so it's special why not just because it's a habit it's special because it's real he rose he rose and him rising is what gives us hope for now and later do you believe amen 
while you're standing, I'm going to share a message that God has placed on my heart, and I'm, I'm thrilled. If you noticed, if you probably saw some of the promotional material, so to say, we, we titled our Resurrection Easter service, Jars of Clay. And I want to read a passage of scripture that might not be often read about on Easter Sunday, but it's a passage that is all about the resurrection, and I would like to share that. So I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to be begin reading at verses 4, and we're going to go down to 7. So it's not a lot of verses. And while maybe traditionally this is not the rhythm, a passage that you read for a resurrection sermon, it's a passage that captures the power of that resurrection. And then you're going to see why our theme this year is jars of clay. Beginning at verse 4, we read this name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the church says, Amen. Amen. Paul writes this. He's writing to this Corinthian church. He says, the God of this age, and look at the lowercase g, so he's not referring to creator God. He says, the God of this age, or some translations might even say the God of this world, or some translations might even help us understand Satan. (laughs) The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this age, the God of this world. And now he's, he's writing 2,000 years ago. But that deceiver, the one that's doing the blinding, is still out there in our world today. Have you ever wondered, how come they just can't believe? That's because there is intention for them not to see. There's intention that they remain blind. There, there's more happening in our world physically There's something happening past the physical. And Paul says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, look, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. And what is the glory of Christ? Who is the glory of Christ? Look, who is the image of God. So there's this force out there. There's this entity. There's this wickedness. There's this oppression. There's this being this who has the intention to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel that displays or that reveals God. Then Paul says, for what we preach is not of ourselves. He's saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm not making this up. I didn't create this. This is not for our own self-promotion, look, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So just keep in context so you understand. This is Paul speaking to real people like you and I who, who who are in the tradition that for them every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And so he says, I'm speaking to you, but not of ourselves. We're we're speaking to you and what we're preaching to you is Jesus Christ as Lord. And we're your servants for his sake. He goes on to say in verse 6, look, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he says, made his light 
shine where? In our hearts. Look, to give us light of what? Of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So look, the light has come to give knowledge so that that knowledge then reveals God's glory. What is God's glory? It's the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, what he did, his work, when we speak about the cross and the resurrection, all of what Jesus has done is to display the glorious face of God to you, to us. And then he says, verse 7, last verse I'll read for right now. But we have this treasure, say treasure, treasure, in what? Chars of clay. Wait, you got a treasure? (laughs) Someone picture a treasure right now in their mind. You have a treasure in jars of clay? Naturally reading like, that's a bad idea. Yeah, I, I wouldn't trust putting. And in many ways, you shouldn't trust to put treasure in jars of clay. I don't know if, look, the jars of clay have the capacity to sustain, protect, and guard this treasure. Are you sure that's a good idea? Let's keep reading. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and it's not from us. Amen? Amen. Tell your neighbor this and then you could be seated. Here's the title of this brief message. Tell him, treasure in jars of clay. And you may be seated. God bless you once again. Thank you so much for choosing to be here at the Dwelling Place Church with us. On behalf of all of the pastors, myself, Pastor Tanya, as she mentioned, Pastor Michael and Sarai, who are taking care of our children, Pastor Daniel, Pastor Linda, all the leaders, all the staff, all of the Dwelling Place family, on behalf of all of us, we're so thrilled that you decided to spend this Easter Sunday with us. God bless you. May God bless you. May God's spirit bless you, bless your children. And may we all see God today. And so I felt this uh, text pressed in my heart. And as I I want to acknowledge that it's not the traditional passage of Scripture spoken about on Resurrection Sunday. But I believe this passage all has to do with the power of resurrection. And so just so you know, I'm going to continue reading those verses in a little bit. But what's so awesome about this passage of Scripture, as I told you, the Apostle Paul is writing to real people. A lot of time we look in our Bibles and we just see verses. It's kind of like, you know, it's almost like a, what's, you know, we, sometimes we go to our Bible just to kind of like draw out a verse, like it's a fortune cookie. How many people like fortune cookies? <laughs> Some of you are like, we got to read these things. Some of us grew up in a house like, don't you dare read those things. But the Bible is not a book where you just grab fortunes. There's a beautiful story that's being told. And so when we read uh, a passage from here, we actually are reading a letter where there's a physical man who has a real relationship with a group of people, and then he writes them a letter. 
Now, if you notice, we're in 2 Corinthians. This is known as a second letter or second epistle. So if there's a second letter, that means that there had to be a... You guys are intelligent. Praise God. (laughs) God has blessed us with intelligent people. And so there is a first letter. But why is there even a first letter? There means that there's a relationship between the man who's writing, who is the Apostle Paul, and the recipients of these letters. This is the Corinthian church. Who are the Corinthians? Well, they're some crazy people who love Jesus. In many ways, the Corinthian church are just like all Christians. Look, they love God. They heard the message. When you read 2 Corinthians, you learn that the Apostle Paul... Maybe you heard this name, Silas. Maybe you heard this name, Timothy. That the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy were men who went and they visited the city of Corinth. And they preached the message of the cross about Jesus who who died and shed his blood. Look, so that they could experience the forgiveness of sin. But then they had revelations themselves. Paul, actually, we read in the Bible that Jesus appeared to him, and Paul had a personal revelation of Jesus. What's very interesting is that before this, Paul was actually going out there persecuting people like you and I who had received this message and put our faith in. We we say that Jesus is king. He used to be a persecutor of these people until he had a revelation of Jesus, and that revelation changed his life forever. Paul is very well-known and famous, whether you read your Bible or not, and and he went from persecuting these believers who were getting together on Sundays and celebrating Resurrection Sunday every week, he went from persecuting them to being an instrument, being a main voice, and being a spokesperson for this very same message that he once used to preach. Paul's life is actually evidence that when you put your faith in Jesus, something drastically can change. He changes when he has this encounter with Jesus. We know it happens on the Damascus Road. As a matter of fact, he was in route to go hurt and persecute in prison. And if, if he could, if he could get a document that said kill him, he would. But he met Jesus and transformed his life in so much that then his, he, his, he was committed to sharing this message. And so then we learn that the Apostle Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they go and they visit the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth is a poppin' city. We could imagine Corinth something similar to New York City. Anybody from New York City? I am. It's known as what? The city that never sleeps. Any other big cities? Miami. Chicago is a big city. Any other poppin' cities in here? Huh? Newark, New Jersey, Baltimore, Las Vegas. Hey, what happens in Vegas? Corinth, actually, when people talk and try to describe what Corinth, I was just waiting for that, thank you. When people talk about Corinth, they talk about it like modern-day Vegas. Why? Because it was this port city where there was a lot of business that traveled through this city. A bunch of business people would come through here, do their business, a lot of men traveling on business. And so you know what it would give uh, opportunity to? Come here, do your business, but do some of the things that you can't do back at home where your family's watching you. 
do your business and then leave. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was also a city that was filled with temples of all the Greek and Roman gods. And so there was a lot of worship. The city was very open to all kinds of conversations, theologies, philosophies, where people can come and share and talk and, oh, that's a cool God. Let's, sure, let's talk about that. And it's just a fusion of all this wildness. So look, you had a lot of promiscuous, what's the rest of that? Yes, you had a lot of that and you had a lot of sexual immorality. And look, fused together with idolatry. Had a lot of people coming, a lot of people going. Look, you also had a, some wealthy people in this city, but you also had poor people in this city. So there were social classes here, and because there's so many people passing, there was a lot of different ethnic, ethnic groups of people that are here. Quorum sounds like a lot of places in our world today. How many people would say, I would love to go preach over there in Jesus' name? It probably would be a city that most would be intimidated to visit and to go and share the gospel. I mean, to go into Corinth and then to say Jesus is king is to, you got to say that while the shadows of their temples and their idols are cast over you. You got to say that while men and women are doing their dirty work in the corners. You got to say that in the midst of other philosophies and other people speaking about their gods. Who would be brave enough to go? I don't know if I would be brave enough, but look, the message so radically changed the Apostle Paul's life that he dared to go into Corinth, and you know what he did? He preached Christ Jesus crucified and resurrected, and the Bible tells us this, that men and women in that crazy city of Corinth, that what happens there stays there, came to faith in Jesus. And you know what began to happen? Their lives were radically transformed. Now, this is a city, and this is, the city has a, a large amount of population because of all the, you know, the movement and people coming and going. And so then the first church, the first church grows up and begins to flourish in Corinth. But don't think it's of churches like today. Oh, that's a nice temple there. You know, look at that church building, and there's a beautiful cross on it. And then there's another church just, you know, five blocks down. No, there's like one church in Corinth. Don't think of a church of, we have a bigger church right now today than the church that was in Corinth. Can you imagine accepting the faith while you were in Corinth? Would you be brave enough to be the only ones to accept the message? You also didn't have the luxury that if you don't like the church and you don't like the preaching, you go and find another one. There's no other one. That's it. You're stuck in that church. But look at this. Then that means this. If you don't like the church, then where do you go? You go right back into the idolatrous, pagan world. You go back to the temples. You go back to the prostitutes who are prostituting themselves at these temples as they worship their gods. This is what is taking place in Corinth. So where's their church? Do they have a nice building? Is there painted walls? No. Their church most likely is the house of a wealthy person who has just a bigger dining room, bigger living room that could fit the most people. So the person, out of all those few people, and, the, and, and you know how many people? Less than 100 people made up the church of Corinth. Don't think of 100, don't think of 200, don't think of thousands in Corinth. A small amount of people who were trusting in Jesus in this chaos. 
So the person with the biggest house gets to be the one where they get together every Sunday morning to worship Christ crucified and Jesus King resurrected. And so how do you think it went for them as they began their journey of faith? How do you think their lives went, progressed? Well, could you imagine? They struggled. They struggled. They struggled like many of us do after we received the message of Christ crucified and resurrected. I think if we're honest in here, if there's anything that is true about the Christian life is even when we come to Christ, we struggle and we wrestle. These are some of the things you got to be careful about on Easter Sunday that when you look around the room, you say, wow, that guy looks really good in that bow tie. <laughs> that guy's green suit. It's green, not blue. <laughs> you know, or she looks so well kept, so well mannered. Look, her children are sitting there like statues. What a Christian she must be. And while all those things are true, your children are probably well mannered, probably do have on a nice suit. The truth of the matter, if we're honest, I think we could all raise our hand and say, even with this suit, even with this dress, we struggle. We struggle. And they struggled bad. Why, how do we know they struggled bad? Read the emails. <laughs> Read the email. I'm just putting it in so you can understand. They didn't have email, so what he had to, he had to write a letter. That baby's. <laughs> He's worshiping God. <laughs> and so look, you write a letter. And so 1 Corinthians is that letter, and in the letter, look, the letter reveals to us their struggle. Now, what you also see is the personal relationship between the Apostle Paul and these Corinthians. So now look at this. When you read your Bible, most of us say, what is God saying to me? For you to help grasp what God is trying to say to you when you read your Bible, you open up the Bible and say, today I feel like reading from 1 Corinthians. Yes, what is God saying to you through the understanding that this is a real man, Paul, who is writing to a real Corinthian church? And then you take, you take the information that you got the insider of their email, and then you make it applicable to you, okay? And so what do, we, what do we find in the letter? We find out these things. Paul so loves the Corinthian church. We learn that he spent a couple of years with them, that, that, he, that he made his own living amongst them, but that he stood, look, he shared the gospel and he didn't just abandon them. He stood with them. He helped them set up their community. He helped them set up their church. But then, of course, he was called to continue to share this message, so he had to leave them. But then he gets word that they're struggling. They struggle. You know what some of their struggles are? They struggle with pride. Look, this is 2,000 years ago, but pride is not foreign. This, so, so look, it's a letter, and he's addressing their pride, but oh man, how can, look, so now when I read it, it can speak to me. God can speak to me. I'm, I got a sneak peek of this email, but look how the letter still can reach me. And so they, they struggle with pride. How, how could they be struggling with pride? Well, one, you got a lot of rich people with some poor people. 
And this is what happens. This and you know what they also struggle with? They struggle with privilege. The difference in the social classes and the difference of their wealth starts to cause these problems with privilege. What, is the, what, what do you think is going to happen if you got a group of people who struggle with pride and struggle with privilege? You know what that's going to create in them? Disunity. And when you read the letters of the Corinthian church, you're going to see him call them to unity. And so what happens when you have disunity? That leads to conflicts. There were conflicts, and there were privilege. You know what ultimately led them? Now, every Sunday they came together, Resurrection Sunday for them. You know what they also did that was a good rhythm and a routine? They, they partook of the Lord's Supper. They would take the bread. They would take the bread just like we do today. This is a good thing that we do. We're sharing in this tradition. They would eat the bread, and they would drink the cup, and they remember the body that was given and the blood that was shed. But you know what would happen? The poor people would show up late, and some of the privileged people were like, we're not waiting for them. And you know what the Corinthian church would do? They would get drunk on the wine. This is a crazy communion. Like, you drank all the communion juice? Paul literally corrects them. He corrects their communion. This is the stuff you read in the letters. He says, he's like, this is not the Lord's Supper. You guys are doing it, saying this is the Lord's Supper, but this is not the Lord's Supper. He goes, some of you are drink till you, you drink till you're drunk, not waiting on your fellow brother. Some of you eat until your bellies are swollen and someone hasn't even had a piece of the bread. He's like, don't you have your own houses? If this was just about a meal, eat in your house. This is not first come, first serve. This is where we come, we sit, and we wait for, look, all those that have received the message of Christ crucified, Jesus resurrected, and we sit together and we wait. That's why we're in this house. He has to correct them on that. You know what they struggle with? Sexual immorality. You see it in the letters. You know what's so fascinating? If I told you that there's someone who professed their life to Jesus and I tell you, hey, they got pride in them. I'm like, look, this person is claiming to be a Christian. They got pride in them. They also walk around privileged. You know what? They don't like unity. They actually cause divisions. This Christian here is always part of the conflicts. This one has strong ties and habits with sexual immorality. I tell you, this Christian is still fornicating. And this one... Drinks all the wine on communion Sunday. How many of you would say that's a Christian? Oh, I know what most of us are thinking. You're like, that brother, that sister ain't saved. That's what we, you know what? That's what we actually do. Are they even saved? Spirit of pride, don't sound saved to me. Spirit of dishonesty, don't sound Spirit of sexual. Now, here's the funny thing. That's what we do. That's what we do. Do you know that Paul never writes in his letter, you are not saved? He never says, you, you're not real Christians. That's, that's not how Paul approaches it. He doesn't sit down and say, well, then I guess they're not really saved or... He doesn't say once they're saved, then they're always saved, so it doesn't matter. No, you know what he does? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't approach it that way. 
You know what he says? He says, you are holy in Jesus' name. He starts speaking into their dysfunction and tries to call them into the new creation that they actually are. He's going to say, you're not saved, get out of here. He doesn't say that now, you know, because you got that pride spirit and we can see that sex demon all over you that you're truly not God's son. He doesn't, he doesn't. He doesn't say, because you got a spirit of gluttony at the Lord's Supper, you're not. He, he, look, he, he caused them to remind them about the beautiful message of Jesus that they heard. And he tries to pull them and exhort them into the faith that they professed. And that is what becomes helpful for them. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't give up on them. That's what most of us do. Oh, she's struggling with all this stuff. He's struggling with all this stuff. They're not saved. And we, we push him over there. And the letters that we send or the emails we send or the text messages we send are about them. But rarely they're ever to the person to try to help call them into the reality of the new creation that they have in Christ Jesus. And so you know what? It's hard for the Corinthians church. He has to also teach them about Jesus. He has to encourage them in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He has, to, he has to talk to them about the resurrection because they don't understand resurrection. Now, here's the funny thing. You're like, well, no, I, I actually don't believe that they're Christians. No? They're like, with all that nastiness in them, they can't have God in them. Well, no. As a matter of fact, the, Paul in his letters to Corinthians, he says, you guys are filled with the Spirit, but you guys are just wild. <laughs> believe it or not, these people, right? who have all these problems of pride, they still prophesy in the spirit. But look, I think it hints at why there's so much disorder when they're in the spirit. They speak in tongues too. Look, they talk about their fellow brother and sister in church, but they still can speak in tongues. And they do all of this stuff, and then Paul's like, but you know what, if you don't have love, then it's just noise. <laughs> So he never tells them that they're not saved. He never tells them that they're not true Christians. He just tries to call them into the identity that they do have in Christ Jesus. And then 1 Corinthians, that letter, that email ends with chapter 16. And so then he goes on his way. Then he writes 2 Corinthians. This is the chapter, the letter that we began. You know how he begins 2 Corinthians? He lets them know, like, hey, guys, I know that this hasn't been easy for you, but this has not been easy for us either. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he actually lets them know, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, that, that as we have continued to preach, that this has not been easy. Like, yeah, you guys, you guys are wrestling with the things that you have to wrestle, but don't think because I'm the preacher and me and Silas and Timothy are out here that, you know, it's just flowers for us and it's just everything's great and just nothing's going wrong for us. Like, look, they're struggling Christians and maybe Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, their character matches more that of Christ. But look, even for the Christian that they have their character, there's still struggle there too. 
Sometimes because when we're, you know, we, we know when we're a hot mess. Raise your hand if you know when you're a hot mess. Right? We look at other people who are not a hot mess and we automatically assume that they just must have it easier, that things are just okay over there. But look at this. You could be a hot mess and struggle and you could have your character in line for Jesus and there's still struggle around you. And he says, he tells them in, in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, I don't want you to be uninformed. This hasn't been easy for us. He says, as a matter of fact, there's been so much pressure. He says, so much pressure that we almost accepted death. He said, we almost accepted the death sentence. He's like, but you know what? Jesus, God has delivered us. God has delivered us. The reason why we have been able to adore, endure this pressure, it's not been on our own strength, but it's because of God. And you know what he says? You know what he says in chapter 2? He said, it's because, look, God raises the dead. What does that have to do with, with your, your persecution here? It almost seems like, what was that for? It's because the Apostle Paul believes this and understands this. Christ's resurrection all has to do with your struggle right here and right now. Look, to them who are morally a mess and struggling with that, he, he ends the first letter and first email for them to understand the resurrection. Him and Silas, who kind of got their stuff together in God, are dealing with other struggles but then he reminds them about the resurrection. So look at this. The resurrection is not just something that we should be talking about once a year on Easter Sunday. In all your struggle, when you're a hot mess brother, when you're a hot mess sister, there's something that you got to understand about the resurrection that can help you with your hot mess. And then even when you're walking right and trying to be obedient and you're fasting and you're preaching and you're serving in the church and then you feel like there's people who are jealous of you or you feel like the devil's attacking you, there's something about the resurrection that gives you strength for that. So in all things, hot mess or hot on fire for God, what all struggles need to understand the power of the resurrection. He always brings it back to resurrection. Look, 2 Corinthians verse 1, 21 and 22. Look how he just kind of closes up that. He starts to close up that chapter. He says this. He wants them to understand this. He says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. They have their struggle and their pressure. He and the other apostles have their struggle and their pressure. And it might not be apples to apples. But this is what's true. God is giving you the strength to endure over there and stand. And it's God who is on our side that is giving us the strength to endure and stand here. And look what he says. He anointed us. He's, taught, he's anointed us. When you trust in Christ, even when you struggle, you need to know that God has anointed you. And him and, and, and him and Silas and Timothy and all the other apostles, Peter and none that are preaching, he anointed them too. Now, most of us think of this when we think of anointing, pouring oil on someone's head. But when you understand anointing and then you tie it down into the Old Testament, it's about you have been set apart for God's use. So know this. 
If you're struggling on that side, you've been set apart for God's use. And if you're fighting the good fight, trying to hold on, God has set you apart for his use. And look what he says. And put what? His spirit where? In our hearts. He doesn't say, we have the spirit and you don't have it because you're a hot mess sometimes. He's, he's like, sister girl, homeboy, we know you're a mess. But he put something on the inside of you. Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, he put mess in all. There's still something on the inside of you. And he placed it in, look, in your hearts. Now look at this, as what? As a deposit. Some of your translations will say this, as a down payment. Oof. What do you put a down payment on? Sure, but what's it for? For ownership. You ain't, don't put, don't be foolish and put down payments and deposits on things that you're not going to own. Any business person will tell you, be careful. But the connotation is here, he's put a deposit, he's put a down payment to own you, for you to be his, for him to be yours. And, 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 and what does it say? He put it where in your heart? Look, guaranteeing. He's putting a deposit to guarantee, look, guaranteeing. What is to come? Look, what is to come tomorrow? And also, what is to come as far as you can think of? And then when he gets to chapter four where we began, he tells them, he says, man, there's a God out there in this world. There's a force out there. There's an evil force. And it's this evil force out there that is trying to blind or who is blinding the eyes. And the reason why they're unbelievers, the reason why people haven't come to trust is because there's one on assignment, there's one on mission to keep the world from seeing the light. But then he says, but the light has come. Look, verse six again. Let's just read verse six again. He says, look, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine where? Where? In our hearts. We just read from chapter one that he put the spirit where? In our hearts. Oh, okay, so now I want you to picture your heart right now. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, or if you haven't, but if you do, I want you to understand something that happens. When you, if we, when you, get, when you trust and receive the gospel message, there's a spirit that's put where in your heart heart as a down payment and a deposit to guarantee you for what is to come. Now in verse chapter 4, he's saying, let shine out of darkness. He made his light shine where? In our heart. Oh, he's loading you up. So now there's a spirit that's given to you, but it's not just, you don't just have the spirit, but look, maybe we could say this, with the spirit also comes this light. And now look, the light is shining in our hearts of what? Knowledge. So look, now you're receiving knowledge and wisdom. Look, you're getting loaded up. Look how much is coming with when you trust in Jesus. Look, 
Here's the thing. The gospel is not just something that we hear. The gospel is something that we receive. The spirit, it's not just, oh, I heard that story. That sounds nice. That's very sentimental. Okay, praise Jesus. (laughs) That's a good story. I like that. No, the gospel is about something that you receive. So when you accept the gospel, you receive his spirit in your heart as a down payment to guarantee what's to come. But then also you receive a light that gives you knowledge. How many of us have been in the dark? (laughs) Feeling like we're living life in the dark. So many unanswered questions in the dark. The things that are happening to us are always dark. How people treat us, dark. The world's hearts are dark. Everything's dark. But when you receive Christ, light comes. And knowledge comes. Knowledge of what? Of God's glory. So the Spirit's given to you. The light is coming to you. For what purpose? For you to see the glory of God. For you to know God who? Our, your creator. Displayed where? In the face of Christ. You want to see God? You want to get to know God? You want to know who God is? It's all in Jesus. Jesus gives us revelation of our Father God. And then he says this. Matt, can you help me? We have this treasure. What's the treasure? The spirit, the light, the knowledge that reveals God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Look at that treasure. The gospel's not just something that you hear, but it's a treasure that we all receive. This is why lives radically transform when they receive that. There's a treasure that is waiting for all of us, for those that are in Christ. But he says it like this. He talks about this great treasure. He's like, you got a treasure, you got a treasure. There's a treasure from God. There is a treasure from God with our name on it. What a treasure. Man, so where are you going to put that treasure? Where are you going to place something so valuable? Where would you place such a treasure? Where would you place such a treasure? If I was given such a treasure, a safe what kind of safe? A big old, I don't know what's the strongest metals we got. I'm picturing ones in the bank that you can't, right? <laughs> See these big banks, like these banks, these, these vaults. It's like, man, I can't even get my own money from this bank because it's behind there. And you need someone to break in and get your own money out for you, right? You just picture something so big. And he says, I put that treasure In jars of clay. Now, some of you might be saying, well, maybe jars of clay 2,000 years ago were a lot stronger. Nope. (laughs) Not at all. I I ordered these as a prop for today. And I had like three boxes to get all the ones that I felt I needed for today. And on all the boxes, you know what they said? Fragile. Fragile. So this means, please, Amazon guy, don't throw my box. (laughs) 
FedEx, please don't punt it through my front door. <laughs> UPS, calm down. I know it's the last delivery of the day, but please walk this thing over and place it securely. And even with all the fragile and the big words in red letters, when we opened the box, and they're wrapped up in plastic and bubble, you know, that bubble wrap, I'm like, are these them? Has to be them. Even, look, boxes, labels, everything screaming fragile, wrapped up. Even when we opened them, there were pieces that broke. So as fragile as, as these things are today, it's just as fragile as they were back in the day. Now, how many of us have these in our homes? For the most part, no. If you do, they're probably decorative. It's like, don't touch that, right? Like, I'm planning to take these home, and if you come to my house, don't touch them. Because if not, you're going to buy me new jars of clay. No one's drinking from them. No juice. No nut. I got plastic for you. These, these fragile things, my wife is going to protect them with her dear life, and they will be on display to make my home look better. But the funny thing is, as fragile as they are now, as they were back then, they were the normal drinking vessels. They were the normal vessels to store stuff. The only thing, they were just so fragile. And you know what? So they were just so cheap. These guys were actually expensive. <laughs> but these were all over the ancient world. You actually could go to Corinth and dig up thousands of clay jars, pottery. But they were, because they were so fragile, then they were so cheap. They probably would be equivalent to today's paper cup. You just give a paper cup, and if it works, it works. If it breaks, it breaks. Just grab another one. And so they were fragile back then. And then Paul says this, this treasure from heaven, the spirit, the light, the knowledge, the thing that reveals God's glory, that then we see in the face of Jesus, says we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's like, Paul, you sure you want to use that as the security for the rich treasure of having Jesus? Now, what does Paul mean? You know what he means by the jars of clay? He's talking, the jars of clay here are not vessels to drink from. Or he's talking about humans. He's talking about humanity. He's saying, look, this treasure, this gift of the Spirit, this light, this God, this face of Jesus, God has, look, he's gifted it to you and I. We are the jars of clay. Once you understand that the jars of clay are us, and the treasure is from heaven, oh, now it makes sense that such a treasure is in such fragile jars. If you misunderstand, you would be thinking that the treasure is placed in fragile jars. The jars could never protect such a treasure. But what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand the treasure is not in the jars so that the jars could protect the treasure. The treasure in the jars so that the treasure could protect the jars. 
This is why the treasure's in the jars. Paul's not silly. He's not foolish thinking that the jars are going to protect the treasure. He says it's the treasure that's actually going to keep the jars from crushing. And so what Paul is saying this, he says, he's very honest. He goes, you are a fragile jar. You are an earthen vessel. You are weak. You are sensitive. You are corrupt. We we trip over and and, and so easily we collapse and so easily we break down and everything offends us and we're so blown away by uh, the trials of this world. We're also so easily misguided and easily hurt and easily offended. And we're so fragile as jars of clay, but we're also so evil as jars of clay. No one can trust us. You, you, I, I would be scared actually to put something in there to drink. I'll be scared. When we picked this up, I was like, Matt, please don't break this before we use it because I, I don't got nothing else. And I don't know if you saw Matt. He was sweating over here. No, <laughs> he wasn't. I was facing you. I was sweating for him to make sure that they made it so fragile. I'm, I was like, I'm walking on a stage a certain way, so, so fragile, to the point that they're beautiful, but you can't even trust them. This is who we are. Beautiful. Look, we're easily, we easily crumble, but also no one can trust us because we break other people as well. So look, the sin breaks us, but our sin breaks others. So fragile, so fragile. So fragile, almost, almost scared to hold this thing. And this is, this is us. This is what humanity is. Fragile pottery. And all it takes is an offense to break us. All it takes is some weird doctrine to take us away. All you got to do is watch some crazy video on YouTube and someone saying something bogus and you distrust everything about the word of God. Fragile we are. God forbid the wind blows over here. Look how fragile we are. Look how fragile we are. Look how fragile we are. Look how fragile. Crack already. Look how fragile. The earth and vessel reveals the fragile dust of humanity. Fragile. What Paul is trying to get the Corinthian church to see, yet this is fragile humanity, we're we're all fragile. But there's a difference when there's an actual treasure inside. So what Paul wants them to see is that this is humanity without God. This is humanity who hasn't seen the glory of God displayed through the face of Jesus. This is the world. This is what that lowercase God is trying to, he's blinding the world, so this is how they live. Many of us live this way. And every day, we're being poured out. Every day, some of us wish to die. Some of us try to take our own lives. Some of us are so, and this is how life feels for most of us. We're leaking day by day. The life God has given to us. And it's true. From dust we came, dust will return. But the apostle says, Jesus, 
changes everything. He does not deny the fact that even in Christ we're fragile. But this is what he'll go on to say. He'll say, but with Christ, look. He'll say, verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side. So don't think because we're in Christ that there's no, that fragile goes away. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but, but we're not crushed. See, in Christ you still get pressed, but you're not crushed. Yeah, we're perplexed and sometimes we're confused and we don't know left from right. We don't know what God wants us to do. Maybe even though you're lost and you're perplexed, don't know where to go. But we're not in despair because there is a God that we can trust will lead us. He says, we are persecuted, so don't think you come into Christ that there's no persecution. He says, but we're not abandoned. He wants them to know that God is with them in the persecution. Look, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says this so profound, look, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And then he, he wants them to see this. There is something about that pressure There is something about that persecution. There is something about that despair. There is something about being struck down that actually that suffering does reveal something about Jesus. You know what it reveals? It reveals that God is true, that we are fragile. But when you have Christ, we're not the same on the inside. In Christ. In Christ, there's a treasure. And so we do get pressed, but it look inside what, what's supposed to be revealed. See, when you don't got Christ and someone betrays you and you leak dust, you give dust back. But when you're in Christ, and someone betrays you, and you forgive them. You give them a treasure. When you don't have Christ and someone hates you, you just hate them back. But in Christ, when you hate them, when they hate you, 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 you love them and you give them a treasure. There's a treasure that is on the inside of us still fragile, still get pressed, still get struck down. But there's something about our suffering that if we truly take hold of Jesus, even in our crushing, we can still reveal the treasure and reveal that treasure to others. Look what he goes on to say in verse 11. He says, for, for we who are alive, look, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So don't think that in Christ there's no, no look, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Look, so that his life may also be revealed 
in our mortal body. Look, he says, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, now remember the context. Paul's going around preaching. He preached to them. And you know what? He's persecuted for preaching to them. He's going around preaching to other places. And he says, look, so there is a death. There's a persecution. There's a crushing that he's enduring. But all of that is what? To share the gospel that ultimately provides life for them and the others that will listen. This is what our lives could be. We truly receive all that God has for us. You don't have to be a bitter Christian. You don't have to be a resentful person. You don't have to be prideful. You don't have to be the one creating the disunity and the divisions in the church. God can heal you. There's still a treasure for you. For everyone who has Christ, there's a treasure still for you. And for those who have not, there's a, tr there's a great treasure waiting here for you. He says, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He goes on to say, it is written, and then he's going to quote actually the Psalms in verse 13. I believe, therefore I have spoken. That's the quote. And then he says, since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe, believing in Christ, therefore we speak. Because we know, look, that the one, and look how he's going to tie all of this together. <laughs> because we know that the one who, look, raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to him. And he brings them all back to the resurrection. So even at death, even when we breathe our last breath, Jesus will resurrect us. He says, all of this is for your benefit, so that the grace, look, all of this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Today I wanna give you an opportunity to receive the treasure that's in Christ Jesus. If you have yet to trust him, today I tell you, you can trust this Jesus. Maybe if you trusted him, but you've maybe faded towards the back, today you can boldly come and receive this treasure. Or maybe you're the Christian like the one at Corinth, that you received the treasure, but you're the hot mess. Today we don't call you a fake Christian. Today we just call you and to the truth of the new identity that you have in Christ Jesus.